Hey there. Welcome to another episode of the Square One podcast series. Today we're talking to Michael Zargam. Zargam is a very uh, experienced mechanism designer who comes from a mechanical or electrical engineering background, actually, and has delved deeply into societal systems or mechanism design within societal systems, which really led him into cryptocurrency uh, development and community development and ultimately DAOs, um, decentralized autonomous organizations. We started this conversation out of a uh, discussion that me and Zargam had in a group that we both participated in called the Medigov Project uh, that's pioneered by Lawrence Lessig. It's a a uh, group of people who are trying to define uh, governance practices and new forms of decentralized governance, essentially, that's not necessarily crypto-based. And one of the cool things that really came from this conversation was the discussion of different layers of DAO systems. So those layers being both technical and human, and how... Uh, these systems can be identified as varying degrees of decentralized and autonomous. Those are the two kind of organization, right, makes sense. But decentralized autonomous organizations, um, the decentralized and autonomous parts are kind of hard to define. And they are determined by different contexts. And so a lot of our discussion in this chat goes around understanding to what extent is the technology decentralized and autonomous, and to what extent are the the is the community and people decentralized and autonomous, and um, how do the both of those play into these different systems that are evolving today, uh, and 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 what you know what is the significance of that? Ultimately, most of these systems are continuing to evolve, but at the same time, a lot of the autonomy aspect. Uh, can really be traced throughout human history in the way that humans have organized themselves, uh, you know, throughout history and, and have either become autonomous from a ruling body or, and, and also, you know, decentralized from a ruling body, like, like, a, like a monarchy or something like that. Um, but also now um, is decentralized and autonomous from any individual actor or any any bus factor sort of it has um, automated systems of development and emergent uh, behavior within the organization. So that's the general sort of overview. Um, I'm adding a bunch of great links that Zargam has included as far as like deeper background reading, and uh, I hope you enjoy this conversation with Michael Zargam. Uh, I hope to have many more with him uh, in the future. Welcome to Square One, a place to deepen your crypto knowledge. I'm your host, James Duncan. Perfect. Awesome. Hey, everybody. I'm here with Michael Zargam. Uh, he is a, well, I'll let him introduce himself, but um, Mike, Michael is a, a um, or really Zargam, I guess Z is really colloquially known as, right? Um, he's, he's the, he, he's a, a, uh, conceptual engineer um, um, behind a lot of these like decentralized governance uh, systems within the blockchain ecosystem. Um, but yeah, Zargam, could you give a little bit of, of background on yourself? 
Sure. Um, I mean, I am an engineer by training, um, largely uh, systems and control, worked on cyber-physical systems type concepts, like higher-order combinations of systems. Um, I studied at the University of Pennsylvania with um, Ali Jadbabai, who's now at uh, MIT. He's the actually head of the civil engineering department. Weird as that is, we'll probably come back to why someone who does large-scale data-driven decision-making systems is the head of the civil engineering department. <laughs> That's interesting. Okay, right. <laughs> um, um, and, and then uh, just briefly, like kind of what brought you into Web3? I got from civil engineering, right? Or yeah. civil engineering was the yeah. Yeah, so, so I'm not actually a civil engineer. I'm an electrical mm. and systems engineer and what I've seen is the merger is that is these data-driven platforms and systems become increasingly civil infrastructure. The the software systems become the platform on which civil society rests, it becomes increasingly unclear the boundaries between those two things. So actually what got me to Web3 was that um, from around 2003, 2004, I was working on like game theory, multi-agent systems, coordination and control. Um, and so it was pretty natural around um, the time that I learned about blockchain systems to start um, playing with them, but that wasn't until around 2014. And so um, I became aware of the technology, started playing around with like the Bitcoin core stuff and like really just getting the hang of the cryptography and low level elements. And when I realized how much blockchains had in common with embedded systems and control, so again, like low level rule enforcing software systems, firmware even, um, I, I got really interested because it it was essentially the robotics of economics. The again this again you have to do a little bit of background reading on what embedded control is and how it relates low level systems to high level system goals. But once I recognized the mapping, I just like couldn't get enough of it, and I uh, started off by participating um, in a project called LBRY, and that was a Bitcoin Core fork combined with the DHT. And I, I didn't stick around that long, maybe nine months to a year. Um, because I had like kind of different vision for what I wanted to do from what um, their particular project was doing, but I um, kind of followed along and I am um, uh, started doing some contract work and eventually um, left my job in industry and started um, working on crypto projects and doing sort of design analysis simulation um, myself with block science and got like just increasingly sucked in over the years. And so now Block Science operates as a sort of research engineering firm with a mixture of economics and data science. And honestly, um, what we do is pretty much the same as what I always did. It's just that now we have um, cooler tools to do it with. And when I say what I always did, I mean like coordination problems that marry low level rules with high level outcomes. And that's always been really tricky from transportation systems and power grids to now our sort of economic platforms and governance systems. That's amazing. I, I love, um, I love your background and, uh, you know, cause, cause ultimately it's like, you know, you're coming from a systems engineering, elect electrical, mechanical background, but then you're applying it. And like you said, um, uh, like Bitcoin is kind of the, the systemic, uh, or it's like, it's like machine economics, right. Is, is the idea. Right. So, and to me, like machine economics is then applied to like society and social behavior ultimately. Right. Like that's why economics are fascinating. Uh, 
And um, anyway, I, I, I love that as like context for our conversation today. We can go in so many directions here. There's a lot of interesting things to talk about, but um, I'd like to focus on um, kind of what brought us here, where we were in a discussion the other week in this MediGov uh, group who are a bunch of people who are really excited about decentralized governance and uh, finding the foundational patterns that are really useful for society and could actually be implemented, I think, is kind of a core uh, purpose for that group. And a big part of that is sort of finding the right uh, way to educate and define what is decentralized governance in the first place and making that approachable and, ac- and accessible for uh, many, you know, the a broader number of individuals who may not be very technical or may not be very aware of the internet even. Um, and so I think that's kind of where, you know, maybe we can try and harness a core sort of the first few levels of understanding for those elementary building blocks that, that people who are listening in could kind of take and, and really start applying to understand what is decentralized governance and what is a, what is a DAO or, and why are these systems important? So I think, you know, the linchpin of that discussion is the thing we called, um, you know, civic education, where it turns out that any governance system or anything democratic in nature, where the decision making is decentralized, you know, the participants and the steers or policymakers of that system are at least, you know, connected. It doesn't mean that everyone makes every decision, but one where there's a meaningful feedback path from those affected by decisions to the decisions themselves um, is going to be predicated on some level of education about this, the process that you're participating in, what does it mean to participate in it, what does it mean to participate in it in, in good faith even, because these are social technical systems. The technology allows you to interact with each other in a certain way, provide some girding or underpinning or infrastructure, but then ultimately the um, the the DAO or the entity or the community that you're participating in is this like social system that is maybe the, the fleshy meaty bits wrapped around the skeleton and nervous system. And until you start to kind of dig into the difference between the the infrastructure, the technology, or the tools which facilitate decision making or even um, administrate a decision making process, um, you like you have to differentiate that from the participation and the, the, the discussions and the forming of opinions and the general sense making that gives rise to um, a community making or achieving a, a rough consensus, say, which might be manifest into a, um, a formal decision through, through a process. And I know it's kind of maybe a little too techy, but maybe a concrete example would be you can have two organizations. Let's take organization one that has a, a multi-sig and that organization two that's running on, let's say, an Aragon DAO. Now, immediately you jump to thinking that the Aragon DAO is more of a DAO and that the multi-sig is more centralized. But if you take the, and you actually take that system and you start to talk about more than just its tools, in this, this, in this example with the, uh, with the, say, Gnosis multi-sig, we, um, we might actually have a scenario where there's some forums, some regular community meetings, some discussions, some proposals on discourse, and, dis- and then a, like a thread that fleshes them out. And by the time a decision is ratified, the, whatever the function of the, the multi-sig you know, key holders is, is really just to 
um, serve as an oracle reflecting the decision of the community that was achieved through rough consensus. Now, I would argue that that's a DAO. That's a decentralized decision-making process, partially administrated through a smart contract, but really the smart contract's only function was to capture the fact by way of the multi-sig. The multi-sig did very little to facilitate the decision-making process, but it was still part of the infrastructure and the community is making decisions in a decentralized way. In my other example, um, now I have a DAO that is extremely, um, or like an organization that is um, maybe a token-based voting system where the tokens are held by, you know, maybe a large number of people with a fat tail holding distribution. And in fact, there are three or four people for whom, you know, they can swing the vote whichever way they want and say they consistently do, or maybe the votes are evenly distributed. It could even be a one person, one vote, but the politics of the situation are so lopsided that a handful of people just say, I think this is what we should do, and everyone or enough people just votes that way to render the decision. At which point, although you have a seemingly more decentralized technical footprint, you have a, you know, a political economy or a, a community which isn't particularly decentralized, a decision-making process has very little feedback between those who would be influenced by the decision and the um, the decision-making process. So um, the reason why I, I'm kind of digging into this is it kind of helps elucidate the difference between what presents technically as a DAO in the sense that um, uh, we would call it a DAO because it has some smart contract infrastructure facilitating dis decision making and that it's at least on some level um, inclusive of participants. Um, as a very different like social system, it's like a very different um, on the ground experience of participation. And by taking those examples, we can move away from this idea that you know the 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 DAO-ness, as you would say, is um, associated to the technology choice rather than the experience of participation. Um, so I, um, I don't know what you think there. I, from there, I actually realized that we've introduced the concept DAO, and I want to poke at it a little bit, but maybe we pause first and talk about, you have thoughts on the example and yeah. 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 I think that's wonderful. Yeah. I think, um, so, so yeah, I, let me, let me like comment on that example and then, and then we can dig into maybe trying to define DAO, right? Because I think that's a very nuanced and relatively complex, uh, uh, system. Um, but my, my perspective, I totally agree. I think, you know, um, I've, I've, I kind of use the idea of sufficient decentralization um, as in context of like that's like the metric for the SEC to determine whether these blockchain systems are um, are securities or not and those that are sufficiently decentralized which uh, there's been a comment made that like Bitcoin and Ethereum are sufficiently decentralized whereas most blockchain applications are not um, um, the and the ultimate idea is that you know if you have enough uh if you have a, a, a bus factor that is that is lar that is greater than one, where one bus a bus factor of one would be if one person dies, the system collapses or decisions won't be made anymore. But if the bus factor is like thousands, then you know maybe it's sufficiently decentralized. Um, and uh, so with that context, the way that I think about these the scale of DAO systems and the way that decisions are made would be on one end you have a multi-sig system. Of of um, actors 
um, that that are uh, that are voting. It's maybe not. There's no market around the voting mechanism of like trading. Uh, like it's not token voting, but it's actually participation. Maybe it's that's like a Moloch DAO style. So it's like a social. You know, there's social consensus essentially achieved, and then a vote is passed in order to uh, facilitate resource allocation or membership allotment. Um, and then on the other end of the spectrum, you have Bitcoin and Ethereum. Uh, and then in the middle is like is like Aragon and 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 DAO stack and uh, Colony frameworks kind of that have different token voting styles that facilitate market participation as well as um, this sort of social consensus layer. I think your point about the system of communication is extremely pertinent and extremely important on on all layers of that too, um, because you know even like. In some of the token like economies that are technically have a more decentralized footprint, technically, they may just have a few whales that are making all the decisions, and and ultimately it's not like truly decentralized. Now, like really digging into understanding whether a system is going to be fully sufficiently decentralized or is controlled by a few primary actors is that's where like a lot of the nuance gets in, and I think ultimately most of this. Most of this econ- most of these economies and these organizations are too young to even yeah. develop a sufficient. So, you know. so what's really yeah. interesting about this, though, is that mm-hmm. we have this really like temporally short-sighted view of decentralization in this community that is a little bit sad because it turns out the concepts of decentralization are have been brought up in a political philosophy regime for decades if not I mean longer truly but like relevantly in, in my opinion if you look at the work of people like Schumacher or you read Meadows or and these this is just like so Meadows wrote Limits to Growth and is also responsible for uh, a book called uh, Systems Think uh, Think thinking in systems, which is very valuable. Schumacher wrote "Small is Beautiful" and, and um, is also just like widely known as like a eco- ecological economist, someone who thought about the the systems in in a much more organic way. Um, uh, I like if we look at that those those bodies of work. Um, you'll find references to decentralization and its importance for things like sustainability, sometimes literal sustainability, but also in any ecological interpretation of an economy, you'll recover the importance uh, of this kind of decentralization. And if you look at something like Ostrom's work, you know, the discussion of polycentrism is really um, a kind of one level up decentralization. It's a kind of um, you know, again, it's about breaking apart the decision-making power so that it doesn't reside in a single point. It might be bus factor of 12 instead of bus factor of 1,000, but the, the importance, the, the central importance of this sort of demonopolization of decision-making power is, um, is far from new. It's just being presented in the context of these technologies where what's really being brought to bear is the same like fundamental, even ontological requirement that if you don't break monopolies, you will always get some sort of exploitation. And I think, you know, from my perspective, the use of decentralization for um, this, this group, this community, Web3, is really about the fact that the technologies being brought to bear facilitate decentralization. They make it easier to have a social system which is decentralized. But decentralization is a property of the social system. It's not it's a it's a 
you know, a political concept. It's not a technical concept, or at least we tend to muddy it with its technical concepts because we also have decentralized systems in engineering. We have distributed systems. We look at models of graph topologies. We look at information dynamics and networks, and we say, ah, you know, this is more decentralized. And it's similar, but it actually borrows from the same core concept, which is that the decision-making authority is spread out, and the difference between distributed and decentralized control, in a distributed control setting, you have an orchestrator of some kind, and in a decentralized control, you have essentially agent-level rules dictating, so like swarm robotics versus something with a, um, a centralized orchestrator, like worker nodes type of architecture. And the fact is that the political concept and the technical concept are related, but they're not the same. So when you use the term, you really need to couch it in which one you're using, otherwise you create confusion. And actually, we're going to have the same almost exact discussion about the word autonomous in a minute. <laughs> I was literally just about to go there as well, actually. That's really interesting. Um, because, yeah, that, that is the thing, too is um, um, the technically autonomous versus socially autonomous. That's, that's certainly, um, uh, you know, technically autonomous, like Bitcoin and Ethereum, technically extremely autonomous, right? Um, you, you, have, you have an incentive system that is literally computer code that's, that's, uh, that's automating rewards for participation in the network. Uh, and and that's, that's, that's like relatively autonomous in that you don't need another human to kind of touch that code in order for it to continue running at you know f into the future more or less right I, I, or did, is yeah. that fair well, it, it's yeah so i think it's like we should start with the words and their their yeah. origins and then we can unpack how they apply depending on how you're using it so Perfect. autonomous like if you start from the older like like if you go to Google Ngrams and you look at the word, you'll see it pops up before. Um, it, it's been around longer than say recently, and in part of the reason for this is it has a political philosophy or political definition again, which is about decision making that's free of coercion. Now I would argue that saying relatively autonomous is certainly important because you need to be autonomous from something. So you have again political phenomena where like groups sort of declare themselves autonomous, or you have an autonomous zone. What they mean is that they're talking about autonomy from a state, usually. Um, in, in, in general, though, autonomy really is about you know, decision-making on your own, free of the coercion of some other actor, and that's super useful in the context of DAOs because, really, that's what the, the DAOs are. They're decentralized organizations autonomous from some existing power structures. That's what at least what they aspire to, even if they're not entirely autonomous from existing, you know, we'll say power structures. They are certainly relatively autonomous to, the, to compared to other systems that we might participate in. So, you know, with the note that that we have this political notion of autonomous, we have to, again, be careful of conflating it with the technical, sort of the, the really two categories of technical definition. One is like the way it's used for autonomous cars, where we think about them as being just highly automated. They're automated to really high levels of abstraction. But I would keep in mind that an autonomous car isn't truly fully free to make its own decisions because it's still making lower level decisions relative to a goal that you set. 
I don't get in a car and have it take me where it wants. I get in an autonomous car and have it take me where I want. So it's not actually autonomous in the sense of the, the, the political philosophy definition. It's actually just highly automated. I think largely the reason why we would use the term autonomous for a car relates back to the mathematical definition of the term, which refers to dynamical systems. Or, you know, um, dynamical systems are these mathematical objects that represent how things change over time. So um, an autonomous dynamical system is one with no external inputs, meaning it's closed form, um, x dot equals f of x, and you get the trajectory of x. And so there's like an inheritance of this mathematical definition for this thing that is sort of a closed system, if you will. It just does what it does. And so there's like an interesting, I would say, co-evolution of the use of the term from its, you know, political philosophy definition via, you know, autonomous from something or, you know, from the autonomous car sort of, you know, the highest form of automation versus the, um, you know, the autonomous dynamical system. And again, they're all not, like, they're all valid definitions of the word. It's just, if you can't unpack it a little bit and be clear, like, I'm talking about, you know, when I, at least when I'm talking about DAOs, I am saying decentralized autonomous organization. Organization is a, a political form. It's a social system, a collection of humans making a decision together. It may also mean it might have some resources and it may have any number of other things, but the organization is effectively a political object. The noun, then there are two adjectives. So decentralized autonomous organization, the noun provides the context for the adjectives. The noun is organization. Then autonomous is autonomous in the political philosophy sense, autonomous from, you know, free of coercion by this other entity. And decentralized is about this, you know, decision-making authority, which is spread out sufficiently. Not necessarily that the procedure for you know, ratifying that decision making isn't somewhat centralized in the sense that you have a piece of infrastructure, it could be a spreadsheet, or it could be a ledger, or it could be a, you know, Dow smart contract, I would argue that, you know, a large open source project is a decentralized autonomous organization, not so much because of its technical infrastructure, but rather something like the Python Software Foundation is so it, it's bus factor is so high and the collateral that it's produces is widely of the form I have given this away and you can use it if you want and if you use it you can show up one day and say I'm a constituent of this system and I want to participate in its governance and even if it's not immediately obvious there's a pathway to participate and it's generally inclusive and like if you're looking at it from the more political interpretation of the terms then the precedence is is there and actually you can start extending it back further in time and if you um, read there's a book called um, Bowling Alone which talks about um, in uh, largely in the US um, the sort of communities and the, the the falling away of very physical real-world communities you know bowling groups and you know various other you know actually they talk about professional societies they talk about um, other types of community action and these groups which have some autonomy in the sense that they they govern themselves and they have some infrastructure whether it's you know bylaws or whether it's doesn't matter what they these are organizations membership run um and like you start to see that the concepts that we're dealing with in our 
you know, technology or Web3 based DAOs are really just come of the oldest concepts in human organization. And like, if you really think about it, every time uh, technology is meaningfully advanced, or at least information technology, from writing all the way up to today, you see some sort of perturbation in the way humans organize themselves. So we're in this like long tradition of, well, what does humans first function? Survive. What's their second function? Well, mostly to do shit with you, like to collaborate to do something. Really survive. Um, but any, anyway, the, the idea being that the introduction of a decentralized autonomous organization is effectively yet again the tribe or the cohort or the small group, maybe a larger group, it gets harder the larger you get. You have these things interacting with each other and it's yeah, it's big and messy and sometimes joke that like all governance is a dumpster fire, but it's at least it's a productive one or like ideally it's a productive fi fire that's, you know, feeding something. Um, anyway, that was a long ramble, but my emphasis here is really just that like whether you like the term DAO or not, the concept of decentralized governance is really just governance. The only reason that we have to talk about decentralized governance is because we have a tendency towards monopolies and people who have monopolies tend to be extractive. And if you're extractive, you tend to put yourself in a position to hold on to your power. So we have a lot of, we'll call them centralization debt or our, our institutions, the world we live in is full of these kinds of monopolies that result in sort of imbalances and there's people hungering for the opportunity to actually participate in the governance of a community where they're both the consumer of the benefits and the, the, the participants in the decision making. And I just think that they're superhuman and that's why it like resonates with so many people and why we see the the influx to the Web3 space, honestly, despite the UX issues, because like from a UX perspective, I'm kind of like, I mean, I was on the board of a nonprofit that ran uh, Ultimate Frisbee Leagues in in Philadelphia and like South Jersey and Delaware. And like, it was great, but like, you know, we didn't have any of this tech. We had bylaws and actually it was big deal when we got like event management software. And yet that organization was pretty autonomous right like you know for, obviously it wasn't to completely like we had you know we had a relationship with the city of philadelphia and like like that was required for us to get access to the fields that we used or to we had engagements that related to running youth outreach programs so we weren't like completely untethered from the world but honestly the organization was run by a board that was elected by the membership and the board selected people to lead programs and the programs recruited volunteers and the vol like it was just like a big web of human collaboration and to be honest my experience in DAOs has looked a whole lot more like that experience than it has looked like my experience in in you know like basically corporate operations management Sure. I, I love that. I think, and I think that was a, a fantastic rant and like a few, just a few points to like pull out of it. Um, I, so, so in essence, like the core, the core problem that DAOs and in large part, like web three and, and decentralized finances are kind of trying to solve is, um, the consequence of capitalism today results in monopolies more or less. Right. And, and maybe the way that we coordinate, maybe it's not just capitalism. And this also isn't to call 
you know, good or evil on anything, because I think that's something that is easy for people to get on some sort of righteous horse. Rather, it is a consequence of human behavior today, right? And and with monopolistic systems comes corruption potential, and with uh, it, you know, inevitably, um, despite best intentions, and then um, and so this is kind of like ultimately trying to facilitate community and and. Uh, uh, distributed uh, autonomous ownership of of action taken by by groups or organizations of people more or less. That's what like a DAO system is is kind of built for. Um, is that a fair like first? Yeah, I think that that's, assertion that's, that's of the problem. Fair. Um, mm. I mean, kind of to speak to monopolies though. There's another you know piece of more recent literature that's relevant. Is um, there's a, a I guess he's technically an economist, uh, Hirschman, who wrote about like this uh, notion of exit loyalty and voice. Or I guess I always never get the order of those words right, the name of his book. But the concepts are important because when you look at something like a Moloch Dow, which like essentially its anchor mechanism was rage quit, it's really just a manifestation of the option to exit. And when we talk about a lot of these systems, what we're really talking about is permissionless entry, the ability to voice through you know, in in the governance processes versus the ability to exit if you feel as though the um, the system is steering away from the direction you want. And in in that you know literature, the the loyalty is more about kind of just like the system's doing something you don't want, and you just like stick with it anyway, right? Like you're you 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 can voice your opinion and kind of push back and try to steer, or you can leave. And the concepts around DAOs really, I think, build on that, which was a very heterodox idea. It wasn't particularly accepted by economists. Um, is actually, uh, honestly, I think it's a better representation. That's part of how we get away from monopolies. It's if you can exit. And one of the challenges that we run into with infrastructures, which kind of goes back to, I mean, in the more civil engineering, you know, or like you know, roads, bridges, power grids, et cetera, you really can't opt out uh, internet service as well. Like you're kind of stuck with your service provider. You're often quite monopolized. If not by one party, you have a very small set of choices. And the inability to exit is one of the main reasons why there isn't like a proper or complete feedback loop. It, actually, the same goes for, you know, states as civilization infrastructure. You, it's really hard to opt out of the nation state that you live in. You can, but the friction's really high. So um, you see some people voting with their feet, at least, you know, in the U.S., moving between states. Um, there's a project called the Free State Project where a bunch of very libertarian-leaning folks moved to New Hampshire. I, I went to Dartmouth undergrad, so I lived in New Hampshire for a while, and, and you know, interacted with some free state project people. Um, but in any case, the idea here is that this notion of exit and is, is actually pretty critical to understanding how we avoid monopolies. And as long as you're effectively locked into Fang, for example, you're stuck with the services that they provide for the terms that they set. And opting out is, at one level, borderline opting out of society. And so like the argument for exit as one of the most critical I almost call it democratic primitives, or as a way of avoiding um, monopolies, is I think pretty understated, and that it could be elevated in even in the Web three discourse. That like, yeah, okay, it's permissionless to enter, but more importantly, you have options and you can leave. And I think that's part of what drives the evolution of these systems, because to succeed, you need the human bit, not just the technical bit. Like you. You can fork a code, the code, but you can't fork a community. Like, I mean, I guess you can, but it really splits. I like this analogy of a, 
of a cell splitting. You fork the code, you split the nucleus, but it's all the same cell until it actually breaks apart. And once it's really separated and there's, you know, minimal, if any, overlap in the rest of the, the material, it might be that one or the other dies off. And I mean, you could argue that something like the Ethereum, Ethereum classic split, or, you know, some of the early Bitcoin splits look a bit like uh, this kind of um, mitosis, but with like, you know, one really growing and the other one uh, maybe shriveling down a bit and maybe doesn't go away entirely, but just like achieves a new equilibrium. Um, but actually, yeah, I think this notion of of separating the code from the, the social media bits actually makes it a lot easier to understand what forking is and isn't as a sort of governance of last resort. Because there's actually nothing wrong with forking if your community's direction really is splitting. You could end up with two really healthy new organisms, but you also don't necessarily. If it's a you know minority fork, it might die off. Or if it's a contentious fork, it could out- potentially kill both sides. Yeah, no, that, I think that's brilliant. Um, and a few, I mean, two examples kind of came up uh, for me that uh, that I think are relevant. One, actually, on the more politically autonomous and like decentralized side, America forked from the UK, right? Like that was that was like an original sort of political fork in some ways, right? And I'm sure there's many examples like pre- prior to that within Europe and and even in like Asia of these sort of uh, political divides and and splits. But that, that I mean, like that's like a a sort of like more human leaning concept of what we mean by, I mean, ultimately these DAO systems, one of the, that human aspect or that political layer of the DAO system. And then, and then underneath that too, like SushiSwap and, and Uniswap, th- those were, that was, a, you know, SushiSwap forking and then uh, dropping liquidity or, or tokens onto the Uniswap user base. Like that was an interesting fork and value creation, uh, 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 you know, event that is still playing out to see whether you know sushi swap survives versus uniswap etc i think a lot of those things still need you know to the time scales like the, a lot of future work is going to be done to better understand the the dynamics of that actually to kind of give a call out there's some researchers at at, at rmit um one in particular ellie rene is a, a digital ethnographer who's been you know studying some of this stuff and one of her students um kelsey has been you know working on some writing with me and and Honestly, like we're, right now, what we're talking about is something that can't be evaluated technically. It's a, it's an, it's an ethnographic question. Um, eth- ethnography being sort of a method of social science research that involves actually like talking to people and interviewing and understanding the lived experience of participating in the system. And I actually think this is really, really. Like, I can't express enough how important it is that we bring this kind of thinking into our evaluation of these technologies because technologies themselves, again, they, they enable these systems, but it's they need to be you know judged by the lived experience of their participants rather than the even, you know, I hate to say the data, I think the data is super important. It's it complements the this sort of ethnographic research but you know my experience with you know data-driven decision making is that actually um it's a little too easy to think that the data is exhaustive and all-inclusive and it tells you everything it 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 canonically does not you can construct and i've even worked with examples where something in the real world and um you like the data presents as say fraud or presents as one thing, but actually if you dig into it, it's something else. And in a way, our example at the beginning about the two um, DAOs that, you know, technically, or if you really gathered the data 
at the level of the code, they one presents as decentralized and the other presents as centralized. But if you step into the ethnography and you talk to people and interview them and you figure out that in one people feel coerced and it's not really they don't feel like they have any stay, and in the other they they feel really empowered and they know that they're participating in sense making and decision making. In fact, that the ethnographic component reverses the interpretation that you got from looking at the data, and this is actually really common. It's part of the reason why our current growth-based economics are such a shit show is because we have constructed a bunch of metrics and then we've you know basically made policy decisions based on making the number go up and then of course hidden behind the scenes is really shitty lived experiences for lots of people so in a way web3 largely a countercultural movement relative to this highly extractive growth-based economics but on the other hand we reinvent that all the time when we talk about number go up so it's really actually kind of frustrating to see us reinventing some of the problematic concepts and so my emphasis is really on learning to hold in balance the understanding of social systems and social science with technical science and engineering and if you're interested in thinking about that more from a technical light, I recommend this book called Engineering a Safer World, which is by an MIT professor by the name of Nancy Levison. And what's interesting is that she's a cyber-physical systems like engineer. She's background's aerospace, I think. And she really digs into how safety is defined in technical systems and really orients it around humans and actually calls out the places where wrong metrics might lead to you to measure something and say, hey, this is good, when in reality, it is actually um, not in a in a human centric view, and so um, taking this from a more technical field helps us avoid the trap of thinking that the the social science and the the technical or the engineering perspective are. Um, like competing with each other. They're actually extremely complementary if you take the time to understand how they fit together because you can use a social, social scientific paradigm to evaluate the health of the organization, the social system, and you can use a technical paradigm to evaluate the integrity of the infrastructure or the integrity of the, the, the like, does the thing stand up? Does it have bugs? Does it run correctly? You know, it really does make sense to look at the data and think about um, how to make it better and more efficient, but ultimately you're making it more efficient at automating the administration of some processes. The processes still have to fit the needs of the humans and the humans still need to use them. And at the end of the day, the goal is the lived experience of the humans participating in the system, not the tech for its own sake. That's brilliant. I love, I, that was, I mean, I love that. And, um, um, I, I mean, I feel, yeah, I feel like, you know, we, we have a lot of opportunity to cover more here, but I think this is a really good sort of high level overview of the, the like fundamental sort of paradigms that you need to be thinking about whenever you are engaging with this technology and ultimately human organizations and, and like potential societal systems, right? Um, like the, the civic, the, the internet civilian, I think is, is, is what we were talking about pre prior to even starting to record. Um, and in a lot of ways, yes, there's this technology that ultimately, you know, is, is decentralized autonomous organization. The fundamental concept of using smart contracts that are immutable that allow for these organizational structures to exist in perpetuity is important. But what is also extremely important is the extent to which there are humans on top of those contracts that are all uh, empowered to control and facilitate the decisions that those contracts kind of like uh, that make. Yeah. yeah. 
Uh, yeah, my takeaway is that you know blockchain networks and smart contracts and the the Web three stack as a whole is effectively um, publicly created, publicly operated, publicly managed public infrastructure. So at the end of the day, we have this problem where we have to figure out how to coordinate well enough to build it, maintain it, operate it, identify strengths and weaknesses, govern it, literally make changes when they need to be made. But that whole system needs to be able to um, function through stewardship of the by the public itself. And in order to do that, you need what is essentially, you know, civics, internet civics, instead of feeling like you're a citizen of the state, I mean, that you live in, and, and you are, but like in your... Um, in your identity, you can think of yourself as being a member of, I mean, I guess the society of the internet or the society of any particular, you know, sub-slice that you ascribe to or that you feel attached to. And you just have to ask yourself, like, what does it mean to be a good citizen of that system? And that actually healthy systems emerge when they're made up of a bunch of people asking that question and then acting in good faith with respect to it. And yeah, they're not going to agree all the time. Like I said, governance in practice often looks like a dumpster fire. The tricky thing is to make sure that that fire is fueling something worth doing. Absolutely. Awesome. I love this. I think that's a pretty decent place to actually leave off. Um, and I'm, I mean, there's plenty of concepts there for anyone who's listening to kind of dig into further um, and, uh, and, and, and kind of yeah, continue to dive. So post-recording, if you want, um, I, we can chat offline, but we can try to make sure you grab links. I've tried really hard to like tether to uh, reference material. And actually I missed one that I would have liked to hit, which it relates sure. to Rawls, but um uh, so like Rawls' veil of ignorance, the initial, the original position thought experiment is super relevant to understanding governance systems. It relates to um, like how easily you move through the system, how you change, like how how your place Wonderful. and it changes. Um, yeah. And actually, it has some. Uh, it actually has a lot in common with the concept of credible neutrality that comes up in in crypto a lot. I, Vitalik you coined that term, but mm. it's it's part of a longer philosophical, like political philosophical tradition, including you know Rawls' work and even before that, this notion of an impartial observer that shows up in um, like Enlightenment era work on like the social contracts and stuff. So like this right. stuff that's coming up, and as I keep saying, fits into this broader understanding of the sort of the evolution of how humans organize themselves. And I'm not saying that there's not new and incredible things going on, but it's largely new tools for solving old problems. So taking learnings from previous discussions of, well, people applying tools that were new to them to solve these problems, um, still very, very relevant. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I love, uh, I, I love kind of providing that proper context and that, that, again, like that foundational knowledge base to understand where we have come from, because that's, I mean, there's a lot of context there and it's really hard to download. I think through conversation, that's why I'm kind of wanting to do this, this content series is because conversation is the fastest way to kind of get to the, the takeaways and the conclusions, I think in an organic, uh, in an organic way. So. You can give people the opportunity to read up on the things that interest them. So, I mean, like, of course. I wouldn't expect anybody to, like, go get a reading list. And, like, oh, I got to read all these books. But on the right. other hand, like, most of the way that you come to understand the kinds of social systems concepts is to read and think and converse and write and, like, 
talk to other people and like hold an open mind and try to like understand each other's point and even if you don't agree with it you understand the assumptions that they're taking and how they constructed their argument and sometimes i find that i i learn something interesting while not agreeing with someone like literally mm. their premise i will not take but i still find that like legs of their logic to be you know interesting and sound and so yeah. um there's a lot to be learned about um social systems that i think again just to double back on it is by by reading and conversing and so when i throw out these books and stuff what i'm really saying is look like it's going to be hard to catch up just by like you know again it's not homework but but if you want to understand where we've been when you start reading some of these things you're like oh wow that really is what we're talking about right now and you're yes. like great that was you know 30 years 50 years sometimes 100 years or more ago and you're like it starts to click that the challenges that we're facing are you know they're not necessarily challenges to be solved sometimes governance is just you know or bits way to think but as governance isn't a you can't code governance you can't solve mm. governance governance is a process you can That's certainly right. facilitate it you can enable it you can empower people you can make it more inclusive there's a lot of things you can do but it as long as you understand that it's a process then you understand that it's like not ever solved it's evolving kind of continuously and then reconciling that with all of the ways that people have contended with that problem over again you know decades centuries even millennia can have a really positive effect on your outlook on what tech can and can't do to achieve better lived experiences that makes a ton of sense um and i do have a wiki to support all like these conversations uh, uh sort of it's probably more around analyzing the technical uh you know concepts that are actually available today that are actually functioning because um, I want I think that's like the mechanisms there are relatively core to understanding how to build the system uh, from a from a technical perspective but then again like as you're describing a lot of this is really it's also the the implication of political theory and the development of communities and and, uh, and, and if you're and a designer and your job is to use those tools to build the system you need to be able to think about it from a minimum two perspectives one is the perspective of the participant and the other is this sort of reflexive position of what properties does the system need to persist and so you mm. have, at minimum you have to anthropomorphize the system and, and ask what will keep it alive and yeah. on the other hand ask you know about the stakeholders from the participants and in fact the participants may be a wide range of stakeholders and then you start using mechanisms to manage value flows and for that stuff, I recommend, honestly, like looking into um, some of the token engineering community has been really working hard to document and define the processes that people go through to distill the value flows, the ecosystem goals. And, you know, and then, you know, a lot of my work is actually quite a bit more computational. So you move in the direction of simulations, collecting data, merging data with simulations to create digital twins and provide a higher degree of visibility in these fundamentally complex systems. But that's wasn't really the goal for today to talk about um, technical methods in mm. the design and evaluation of these sort of um, socioeconomic systems. Absolutely. Maybe for another time. I mean, I would, I would love to continue chatting and, and sharing this kind of knowledge. I think it's really important. Cool. Thanks for having me. Epic. Thank you for joining. I really appreciate it, man. And, uh, and look forward to continuing the conversation. Cool. I'll see you. Thank you.
If you want to explore more and deepen your understanding of cryptocurrency concepts and mechanisms available today, please visit our Gitbook or Crypto Encyclopedia. You can find it on our website at squareone.tech. Thanks for listening.